0: His views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity.
1: Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Dwayne Purvis, Reservoir Engineer and Advisor. I had Dwayne on the show about this time last year to talk about his view of the energy transition through the lens of a reservoir engineer. So I'm excited to have you on the show again. Last year, he also introduced us to the his... Annual Conference Carbon Expo. Now, Duane, you've had quite a busy year. We do talk off the podcast on a semi regular basis. So I know you've been busy. I'd like to get an update from you, see how everything is going, and how your outlook has changed with everything that you've been up to over the past year. So thank you for joining me on the show today and starting off early with a few technical errors or difficulties. Uh, since it has been a year, can you remind the audience who are you and what do you do?
2: Hey, first, thanks for having me, Joe. Always good to, to be here with you. And as you said, we we talk offline, and I appreciate that. Um, what uh, I've I've spent 30 years as a reservoir engineering consultant, engineering manager, and what I help people do is make strategic decisions based on detailed technical analysis. So uh, sometimes for acquisitions or divestitures or drilling programs, um, other kinds of strategies, and in the context of litigation. Uh, now, for for a, a while there during COVID, people weren't making very many investments and didn't need very much strategic <laughs> advice. But no. hey, uh, the industry has really picked up uh, since since we talked last, and and so is my work. But. Um, I'm also almost finished with my degree in sustainable energy.
1: All right. yeah, that is that's kind of one of the things that we've talked about most recently. So I want to get into that. You have almost 30 years of of oil and gas industry, knowledge, expertise, work history. And now you've gone back for a sustainable energy degree. Can you tell us first a little bit about that program? When you're talking sure. sustainable energy, does that mean renewables or does that mean cleaner <laughs> oil and gas or is there something yeah. in between or a happy medium? No, it's,
2: a, it's a great question, Joe. In fact, I'm gonna, I've been planning a post for LinkedIn to try to differentiate because most people think that the energy transition means wind and solar. And that's a terrible uh, concept of what energy transition means. Sustainable energy is a very broad umbrella. And what it means is we can do it indefinitely. So it does mean some different generation, but it also means an emphasis on efficiency, and uh, CCS, and energy storage. We're gonna put this combination together. And then even when people say renewable, that doesn't mean wind and solar. Um, renewables also includes hydro, for example, which is, um, something like 20% of the world's electricity already. Um, so we, it is sustainable energy is the biggest, the biggest umbrella.
1: That is, that's a good way to, to put what we should be looking for, for energy, because I think that is ultimately what we're trying to strive for. Yeah. And what what other guests on the show have talked about is that it's not just about decarbonization or net zero. It is about a sustainable, modern society, something that everybody has this high quality of life, long, long projected li- lifetime, and and something where we can have lights on and be able to read books at night or <laughs> do what we want to well, do.
2: And this this issue also comes down to time horizon. And we're trying to we're talking about what we want to do in the next 27 years, by 2050 is the most common goal. Now, to be clear, the date is a proxy. The date doesn't actually matter. What matters is total emissions. But we we're looking at this focus on a 27-year time frame. Um, My kids and grandkids are going to be alive then, but my kids and grandkids, or my grandkids in particular, are going to be alive far, far past that. And humanity has six or 10,000 years of recorded history that we know of. And we're talking about trying to plan for 30 or maybe the 2,100 for 80 years. I mean, the question is, do you want humanity to survive another 1,000 years, another 4,000 years? Mm -hmm. If that's the case, we have to operate in such a way that the world is no worse the wear for having done that for a thousand years. And so that's that's my definition of sustainability. We can do it for a thousand years, and the world's no worse the wear.
1: Yeah, I think that is a that's definitely a, a forward looking statement. And and back when I was in grad school. I think and maybe something that you have also seen in this past year while you were back in school. The the different time horizons that are typical operations. You've got your political cycle, which is your for us, it's two to four years, depending on which which position you're running for. And then you've got something that is more R and D phase of developing technologies. And then you've got that fifty to hundred years something that really nobody even thinks about it's just stories and science fiction books that talk about this far off distant future that to your point 80 years is is a blink of an eye in in the scale of humanity and and if we want it to continue to be a blink of an eye not the end of the line we we do need to be thinking about yeah, yeah. a kind of 1000 year time
2: frame yeah well the the way that we have come to think about The future is with discounting, but Hmm. any sort of exponential discount rate eventually assigns an absolute maximum, eventually assigns no more value. Right? So if I use any sort of discount or a hyperbolic discounting, which incidentally is a thing, um, any sort of hyperbolic discounting with a hyperbolic exponent of one or less, we the entire value of all the future has a limited sum even at low discount rates. But if I discount the future, I'm more likely to have a bad outcome of the future. It's a compounding problem, a circular problem. The less credit I give, less weight and consideration I give, the more likely I am to screw it up. So the the best thing we could do is some sort of super hyperbolic discounting or place a, and that's a quantitative measure, but philosophically it's place some real value on the lives of humans 200, 500, 1,000 years from now.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a very interesting point. And I've, I've never heard about the hyperbolic or super hyperbolic discounting rate. So we'll have to talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I want to... I want to take a step back and we've been talking kind of around the, the what and the how, like what you've been learning mm-hmm. in this program. I I guess the, a big question is why, why did you go back to school? Why did you start learning sustainable energy? And, and where does that fit into now you've had your 30 years of a career and yeah. now, now you're almost doing this shift or this pivot.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I am, Joe. And it's it's kind of ironic. I'm working on a project right now, and one of the primary questions is the cementation exponent in Archie's equation. And then that feeds into a um, a compressible formation material balance in an overpressured reservoir, which is all just hardcore conventional oil and gas stuff. Um it's quite unusual, though, that I have that project right now. There are very few of those projects that exist. So several, several years ago, I was starting to think about the energy transition and and the effect of CO two on the world. And I I came to a couple of conclusions. First, CO two is an unconventional pollutant in the way with that shale is an unconventional reservoir, right? Different properties still has bad effects and we really do need to reduce emissions. Number two, the world sees that the world is making a change and we will see peak oil in the near term. When we see peak oil, it's going to change the need for me and my services because most of what I had done up to that point was oil and gas strategy in North America, worked basins all over the world, but mostly North America. And the, uh, So Reservoir Engineering is primarily a front-loaded operation. Geophysics, uh, petrophysics, uh, landmen, reservoir engineers are front-loaded. Drilling engineers are front-loaded. Operations engineers are back-loaded. So once we go through a peak demand, the, the need changes. And then add on top of that, the fact that the production in the U.S. is extremely mature. We are at or past peak production in shale and we're 50 years past peak production in conventional milled rice reservoirs so i add all that up and say look i've I've got 30 years i've loved it it's great enjoy the work but i'm not sure i see another 20 years i want to i want to keep working i don't see i don't see that opportunity so uh I, i looked around and found this program at johns hopkins and it's a program focused on um Big picture strategy questions, policy, which is the same kind of stuff I deal with um, in in the work I do for clients. And so I, I find it a fascinating, fascinating question. Um, wh- where do we need to go? How do we get there in a wide, wide open world?
1: All right. Yeah, I think that's that is a that's a great reason to go back to school, right? <laughs> And I think that's it also kind of talks to the idea of a worldwide global energy system, which is kind of this idea of sustainable energy. Now, you mentioned carbon and carbon being a, a unique component to the system in basically once we get too high, now it's a toxin and a pollutant. We can't get too low because then it we start to start to starve plants and Yeah, yeah. And I hate that everything. argument.
2: It's true, Job is completely I know, absolutely it's, irrelevant. It's
1: true. <laughs> it's it's an interesting conundrum because it I guess going down that rabbit hole, you have to find you have to find a happy medium to get everybody on board, I think is mm-hmm. is the point that I make in terms of it's almost like you have to have this political answer of saying, well, we do want some carbon, but we know that if it's too much, it's bad.
2: Well, it's, it's the same so, issue either either way, right? We, we developed uh, our infrastructure. We created all our systems for agriculture, for water, for our houses, our offices, our resorts, based on this number. And if we yeah. go too high – then the system changes around us and we're no longer optimized. If we go too low, we're also no longer optimized. But the problem, the possibility of getting back below where we started is absolute zero. There is no scenario in which we accidentally go from 250 PPM to (laughs) 180. Oops, right? The idea of getting back to 250 is fantastical. That's the world of science fiction and fantasy. so it's it, the the concept is true and the concept applies narrow band, but you know I don't. It's not a it's not a from yeah. a from a practical no. risk management standpoint. Like the, looking at uncertainties and what matters, that range of uncertainty does not matter.
1: Yep, yep. I I see what you're saying, and I think as we go along those lines, I think the point there is that if we want to stay in that narrow band or stay with what we know and we kind of don't want to adjust and and don't want to deal with kind of the the extremes of weather and extremes of of what will happen if we continue to rise in CO2 in the atmosphere, we need to figure out something to do with it. And to me, that is where where you and your your new conference that you've developed, Carbon Expo, kind of comes in. So for the people who didn't listen to the podcast last year, didn't attend Carbon Expo, can you give us a brief recap? What is Carbon Expo? How was it last year? And what are the goals of Carbon Expo?
2: Sure. Um, So I created, I conceived Carbon Expo in uh, 21 because I saw the need for oil and gas to go a different direction and saw the opportunity. And this was part of the struggle I had when I was examining um, the threats to my industry. I turned around and said, okay, well, what opportunities are created? And what I found was a lot of the energy transition requires the skills, the knowledge, the capital, even the assets that the oil and gas industry already has. And that if we can stop seeing it as a threat, see it as an opportunity, we can actually do a lot for our business and for the world. So the idea of Carbon Expo is decarbonization is an opportunity. Our goal is to give people the knowledge, the insights, the relationships they need to lean into and to succeed in the energy transition. So we were uh, if not the very first, one of the very first dedicated decarbonization conferences for oil and gas. We had 150 people show up last year, which was as many as any decarbonization conference. Um, and uh, we're going we're to do it again this year, still virtual, still at a, a fraction of the cost of, of most events. And we're still going to try to give people the the insights and tools they need to make a strategic shift into the transition. Mhm.
1: That's great. And that's why I all of that partially why I started the podcast, all of that why I attended and continue to contribute to Carbon Expo and and enjoy it as one of one of my highlights for the year. Now, thank you. For the when we're talking about decarbonization and the opportunity that that, that provides for oil and gas, I think there, there are some obvious opportunities. There are some that are commercial and near commercial today. What what areas are or what types of projects or opportunities are there like that?
2: Well, as I see it, there are uh, a couple of things that are near term that we've got to do that are partly protection and partly opportunities. And then there's a, a section of things that are real genuine opportunities in the near term and another section that are longer term. Um, in the near term, we have got to plug our wells and we've got to reduce the emissions from our operations. If we do not do those, we will lose our license to operate. Uh, already we're seeing uh, companies differentiate their products and get more for their money, their, uh, for their product, gas in particular, if they can verify its low emissions and the reason is that although natural gas burns less uh, creates less co2 in the generation of electricity even one or two percent emissions along the supply chain flip the balance and make gas hmm. more polluting more co2 more co2 pollution or I should say more greenhouse pollution than coal so if you want to if you want to maintain gas if you want to create uh, the opportunity to continue producing and using gas, we've got to reduce that emissions. And there are some incentives in price. The second, though, are, are opportunities of what needs to happen uh, in the future. And the first on that list is is CCS and the second is geothermal, as I see it. These are the, the things that are closest in need, closest to being able to develop. The CCS needs to grow according to the the model pathways, the ideas about how to get to net zero, they need to grow at like a 21% compound rate of return, compound growth for 30 years, which is growth. gargantuan, gargantuan. And the volu- the regulatory markets are lagging, but the, the IRA helped a lot, but voluntary markets are where it's at. And the, those projects take a while to grow. I, I believe uh, now is the time to bet on voluntary carbon markets. And do CCS projects. Now, the second in that near term is geothermal, because it's so close. And we—I'm like, talking to the choir here, right? It's geothermal. What's thermal? is your thing? But it, <laughs> yeah. the, the the technology is so mature. The science is so mature. It's so close to all the skills that we use right now. Um, I, and, Of course, there are, there are a bunch of ways to, to do geothermal. Um, it, it, it's porous rock, or it's naturally fractured rock, or it's artificially fractured rock. Um, it's stalled, drilled, and it's all fluid flow and porous media, and that's our stuff. You know, that's our business. Now, yep. longer term, there's yep. some others, but those those are the, and those are the ones we're emphasizing in Carbon Expo. We're going to emphasize emissions, uh, CCS, and geothermal
1: all right what about some type of are there any really exciting ideas out there you're talking about long-term futuristic maybe falling more into the sci-fi than the sci part (laughs) right now are there is there anything like that that you're like this if it works out if we can figure it out in the next 10 to 20 years this could really be a game changer
2: oh you know the the thing that would be the biggest game changer, I think, would be uh, some sort of um, oh shoot, I can't find the word. So a, a way to a passive way to capture carbon dioxide out of the air. If we can, mm-hmm. um, metal organic frameworks have come a long way, but um, oh shoot, filters, nets. I forget what the word is. That, that could screen out and, and passively capture CO2. That would be huge. Um, the, they've been working on it and the DOE continues to fund it. Uh, but once, once that happens, we can decarbonize. If that happens, we can decarbonize a lot quicker. But more in the realm of possible um, are things like uh, energy storage and virtual power plants. This, I believe, is the next—not necessarily oil and gas—but in the in the near future, that's a huge, huge opportunity. Um, yeah, you know, we've uh, wind and solar are so cheap now that they're displacing, um, and it has been for several years. We've globally installed more wind and solar than we have anything else. The as the penetration increases, the next need is storage and virtual yep. power plants and. And other distributed resources, I think, are a fantastic opportunity, and that's, I think, a real opportunity for growth. Not necessarily us, although uh, there are a bunch of um, a bunch of well sites in Fort Worth related to the Barnett that I think could be converted into energy islands—a combination of energy storage, geothermal, solar, and wind—that could turn those into um, a, a real money maker, uh, by, just by reusing it, what's already there.
1: Yep. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's uh that last point that you made and thinking about energy storage, virtual power plants and the things that could really change the environment and change the the outlook and landscape of our greater energy ecosystem. I think that is a really a really forward-looking spot where energy companies as we all change our names to something something energy and something 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 (laughs) producer removing oil and gas from the names and putting in energies i think that is a spot where if you are now this greater energy company energy storage and virtual power plants where you're running and optimizing other people's energy use that would be a a huge opportunity and that's kind of what a lot of companies already do. If you've got a, a oil and gas field that has 100 wells in it and you are trying to optimize that field, you probably have some type of software or some type of close to real-time, near real-time cloud data infrastructure that is turning wells on and off as they are needing to needing to either pump harder or store up pressure or or um, dewater the,
2: yeah. the well. You talk about uh, so, SCADA and um, various kinds of flow controllers. Yeah, and, and our industry is yeah. highly, highly technical. We've got a lot of science. We work with a lot of data, and all those are going to transfer. In fact, I've known several people already who left the industry, uh, and they went to do data somewhere else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, it's a fascinating way to think. And I I think the last time we spoke, you were pointing out that you feel like either the industry or yourself, or you see there's two different postures. There's either people on their heels that are being defensive, or there's the ones that you just mentioned who are going forward and saying, okay, what are my skills? How do they transfer? And how can I be part of either a different industry using everything that i learned in in the oil patch or how can i help help my company or the energy industry as a whole prepare for this kind of even wider array of revenue streams and of production commodities that we're we're producing
2: yeah and i
1: So there wasn't really a question there, but
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was at ATC. I'm sorry I missed you, Nate, but I I was at ATC for the the Society of Petroleum Engineers last fall. And the biggest topic of discussion that week was how people are blaming and attacking oil and gas. And part of the reason that people were starting to talk about energy is distancing themselves. I tell you what I've found, though, since I've been in the in the program. There are a lot of people in oil and gas who now use the word energy and consider themselves experts on new energy, and they're really not. They don't know any more about new energy than they've read yeah. in their news feed. That just doesn't cut it. Mm. This is a, a whole industry. And what's more, the things before I started my program, the things that I thought I knew, a bunch of it was wrong. But anything I thought I knew five years ago is probably out of date. This Hmm. domain is moving so fast that it's not not possible to be an expert with casual reading or reliance on old information. But because it's moving so fast, it creates so many opportunities. And I I think of the energy transition today as the internet in the early '90s. It's going to grow rapidly, unpredictably, ways I can't project. And there can be some winners. There can be some losers. There can be some winners that become losers. But it's gonna it's gonna change our world as we know it. And it's it's much better to to be a part of it.
1: Yep. Yep, absolutely. Now, we were supposed to be recording this at NAEP. Obviously, we're not. We are here recording this over the internet, and we can always blame weather because <laughs> that's usually the case for, for missed plans and missed opportunities. But from my perspective, the attendance was good. It was lower than pre-pandemic highs, but it's continuing to pick up there was as 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 i was walking around i felt a sense of lively optimism and i realized that what i'm saying there there's not there's nothing there and that's not relevant to the question my question how do you see <laughs> sorry how do you see shows like nape which stands for the north american prospect expo i think yes how do you see something like that as part of the energy transition?
2: Well, let me, let me say first that I've gone to NAEP for years. I wanted to go this year. I see it as a valuable show. But as you look back through the history of the attendance of NAEP, it correlates to the big changes in trajectory and perspective from the industry as a whole. So but in the early years of the shale revolution, we got up to twelve and 15,000 people. A year after 2015 the price collapse it came way down of course it went practically to zero it went to absolute zero during COVID the first event after COVID was 5,000 people (laughs) and this year was 8,000 so last COVID we can't count and last year people were still kind of dicey about about COVID Uh, and, and of course at that time prices were still much lower prices now are high have been high and a rig count is back where it was pre-pandemic, but the attendance is still markedly lower than it was pre-pandemic and very much lower than it was before 2015. And this goes back to what I was saying a a minute ago about the outlook for development of additional resources onshore US. We haven't found a new shale play since 2014. The major oil plays have drilled the major uh, the majority of tier one acreage. There's no doubt that uh, Bakken and uh, Eagle Ford are past their peak. Permian might hit uh, a new high. It depends on what prices do and how fast we drill. The the hottest strategy for the last couple of years has been for people to buy non-op working interests or to buy other people's throwaway AFEs. And the reason is that's what's available. That's what strategy can work in the situation we're in. So um, there's always gonna be a need for something like NAEP for people to get together uh, and talk. And NAEP has set up a renewables booth um, I don't know. I'm not sure how much value there was in that this year. I didn't. I didn't make it. Um, but the the prospects that people are are talking about, looking for those ideas, need to be like we have at Carbon Expo, the new energy ideas.
1: Yep, I think that's. I could see that as being a. A natural progression for something like nape is that you it well i think taking a step back nape now has an international international pavilion and international uh, opportunities not necessarily north america so at some point they started to expand out from just north america in one sense and then renewables they do have that renewable energy pavilion from from my perspective it it seemed small i couldn't figure out where it started and where it began there were there were a few a few things that pointed out oh here we're a renewable energy focused capital firm or there was a company that was purely looking at land Acreage positions and helping people from a land management or landman house shop looking for renewable opportunities. And there were a few of those, but there wasn't like a here are the 17 prospectors mm-hmm. or prospects or companies that are saying they are in the renewable energy pavilion. Yep. Yeah. So give it, it, was... uh,
2: give it a few years. And if Nate doesn't adapt, Um, we probably won't be there, but if it, if it does adapt, I think you'll see that's the most common, uh, you'll see a lot of people pitching. This is my CCS project. I need money. This is my, um, energy Island to redevelop pads.
1: Yep. Yeah. I, I would fully expect that in the years to come and hopefully, hopefully you see a lot more of it next year as they, or if. Are they bringing back a a summer nape? Are you on the inside? Do you know this stuff?
2: You know, I don't know, uh, Joe. I I, I could probably find out because I've I've got some connections over there, but uh, I don't, I don't suspect they're going to bring back summer nape. Hmm. I'm just, just a guess. Um, Yeah. But I would be interested. What else did you observe about the, the people and the, the mood and the outlook recognize that, you know, it's, it, it's a sample. It's always a sample. But that's I'm always I'm always looking for multiple samples, right? Yeah. What, what was it you walked away thinking yeah. Or observing?
1: Yeah. So i I've only attended NAEP a few times, and the previous times I've attended, it was ninety to ninety five percent. This is the first observation. Previously, it was ninety to ninety five percent landmen or or the PR or marketing part of the company. That is what was in attendance previously this year. Somehow every single booth that I went to and, and granted, I maybe made it to 20 booths. Every single one of them had a geologist. And I don't know if that's because that is how I, I somehow gravitated to those or, or is that a market difference in, in who is attending Nate. What were the judges? There were other times where there they were I think they were talking about the more the technical merits of the play and, and what and how they've come up with it and why it's good. Interesting. So yeah. So I don't know if that is a an aspect of people are are being a lot more more critical of plays and and requiring more scrutiny and would rather do that up front at nape. So that way there's less funding and this may be your only opportunity to talk to this potential client. So let's have the technical people ready to give a good pitch. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's the case. Maybe like I said, maybe it's my sample set was biased. Interesting. But that was that was one aspect. The other aspect, I, as I said earlier, it felt like there was it was lively, and I felt like it was optimistic. Everybody I talked to, more or less, was was excited for what was going on. I think the one of the other keys that we we've heard constantly already is that there's either a labor shortage or or inflation, and ultimately projects are struggling because of that. They either can't get a crew or they can't get a good enough crew that they they trust. And ultimately that ends up costing them more money. And the same with equipment. They just, they can't find all the equipment they need, which ultimately costs them more money either through breakdowns or through sitting or if they have one problem, now they have to sit for weeks Interesting. and wait until they can get that other part.
2: Thank you for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think as, as you know, and as you've been there, the other aspect is that there, there were a lot of companies and I I felt like there were a lot of larger companies that had fairly big booths and, and very, very good attendance from those companies. I didn't actually talk to very many of the, the larger operators but, and the reason behind that is because, as you know, when you go to Nape, you ultimately see these people, for you, 30 years of past colleagues, for me, not, not so much, but even still, I would say there were, if I talked to 20 people, 10 of those people would have been people I already knew and people that I haven't seen in a year or, or potentially longer. So half of it, to your point, is you need to get people together. You need to talk about ideas, see where everybody's at and and get this kind of interaction to learn like, oh, people are having trouble with getting equipment. Maybe if I've got a good rig, I should hold on to it or if I'm not using it. That's right. And don't plan on using it for six months. I should release it to make sure other wells are getting drilled.
2: No, and that, that's hugely so, valuable. To I find think out, that's
1: part of the value. Yeah,
2: absolutely. To to re, to renew old relationships, to find some new ones, and to get a sense of another other perspectives beyond your yourself. You know, I, I have more conversations at yeah, okay. Nape than I do um, in a couple in several months between uh, of, of other sorts of normal conversation.
1: Yeah, yep. Now, I will say that that I was only able to walk the floor for a day, and they only had it for a day and a half. So I would really like to see Nape go back up to the two and a half days that they had, that they used to have for the floor time, but I'm sure that... <laughs> I doubt anybody's listening. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> you don't think so. No, I, Is that too much time?
2: Well for for me day and a half's been fine. For for years I'll I'll hit I'll work it hard um, on Thursday and then I'll back clean up on Friday and I I get everything covered. Hmm. Uh, that's just me. Um,
1: well, I guess I just talk too much when I'm <laughs> when I run into people. Nice. Good problem. <laughs> or you have you have a set plan? Oh, I do have a plan. I, I, I definitely would not be able to... Yeah. Hitting 500 booths in eight hours is just... That is... It doesn't compute for me. <laughs> it's too difficult. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we've been talking about NAEP for a while, but Carbon Expo, the next, the next one, is coming up soon here. So... I want to talk about that just a little bit. What can we expect from Carbon Expo? When is it? And is there any information out there if people want to start registering and, and sponsoring, anything like that?
2: Thank you for asking. So we're going to meet again on Friday, March 3rd. And like last year, it's all virtual. We're going to have um, about as many speakers as a two-day conference. But instead of a single-track live it's going to be multi-track pre-recorded virtual. So people can listen to what's of interest to them. They can listen to it on double speed (laughs) Uh, or time or speed or time and a half. If, uh, if it's really meaty and, um, (laughs) and then of course we've got the the searchable directory and you can live video chat with anybody else in the conference. We've got breakout rooms for people to hang out and eat lunch together. And we've got a, a, a lot of a lot of features set up for that. And our, our cost is about a tenth of an in-person event. So um, we're hoping that we can bring in a larger group. People who um, can't necessarily go to Houston, for example, for two days can get uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of good content. Um, our, our speakers are still being lined up as we speak. We record this, you know, a little bit before it comes out. Um, we've got the S and P Global head of uh, emissions who's going to talk with us. Um, we've got a couple of CCS engineering firms pretty, pretty sure going to join us. You're going to join us talk about geothermal. Um, yep. We've, we've got uh, we're in discussions with BCG to come talk about voluntary carbon markets. I'm not sure they're going to make it, but they just put out a great report uh, with about voluntary carbon markets. Um, and that's what we're going to emphasize. Like last year, we're going to talk some about CCS and geothermal. And this year, we're going to also talk more about emissions.
1: All right, that's great. And is there a is there a website where people can go and get more information and and register if they want? Well, of course,
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, CarbonExpo.us. And uh, you, you can see the, the program uh, that we've got outlined there. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, we're also going to put make available on this event all of the content that we've created in the past. So all of last year's content is going to be there, including your presentation. This is sort of an orientation to geothermal. Um, we had a, a, a presentation last year about leasing for uh, solar. That hasn't changed that much, and that is going to be available. Um, we've got we'll replay our webinars on uh, education for the energy transition and 101 uses for a dead robot. Uh, which was just a fun fun topic. Yeah. So we have a, we're going to have a, a crap ton of content there uh, available for folks and and uh, www.carbonexpo.us is the place to go learn about it.
1: All right, that's great. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Now, I think that'll be a good point to transition now into the final questions. Now, you've been asked these before, so I need to modify okay. them ever so slightly. Okay. The first one is What's another favorite book of yours? You know, I don't remember what recommend? I said last
2: year, so I might repeat myself. No,
1: I'll tell you what. That- so, last last time you said Seven Habits of Highly Effective oh, yeah, People. Yeah, still
2: a classic. Um, I, I tell you, one of my favorite books uh, is nonfiction. Is John McPhee coming into the country? So John McPhee's a nonfiction writer, uh, and it, it, he's written for the uh, the New Yorker magazine and written books for literally decades. And he's just just so much fun to read, just a joy to read. And he, in this case, he's uh, talking about Alaska in the early 1970s. Um, it's beautifully hmm. written, fascinating topic.
1: Yeah. Anything about Alaska, I have an immediate fascination with. Uh, so I'll have to find that. Are you an audiobooks guy or a physical paper guy or a Kindle guy?
2: Physical paper, actually. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah I I much prefer a physical book but i my wife just got me onto audiobooks so i now i feel like i read more read in in quotes there right. because i'm listening to them and it is it is amazing just how much i can do because i can definitely listen to more especially when i'm going yeah. at double speed right. than i can read yeah but there's just something about physical paper and having it in front of you and then having it for when you want to go back and reference it. Okay, the, it's so much better.
2: And I, I like the overall experience. I I, agree, I can get the content faster yeah. by audio, but the experience of reading it, I enjoy it better. I'll tell you yeah. what I'm reading right this minute is a book by Arthur C. Brooks called Strength to Strength. And it's the idea that you can find purpose and fulfillment in the second part of your career using a little different strategy than you relied on in the first part of your career, including heavily giving away mentoring, um, coaching, which is incidentally, the eighth habit that um, Stephen (laughs) uh, Covey talked about. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Well, I will add both of those to my reading list, and I'll have links to those for, for the listeners. Now, the next question is: When will we be net zero as a society? <laughs> as a reminder for you, last time well, you you said that you don't know, and and that's all I wrote down from my notes. I but
2: I I don't I still don't know, Joe. Um, but I, I tell you what I I will, I will say in 2018 i wrote an article i i did a bunch of research on the on peak oil and i looked at um the way that the peak oil projections were changing over time and incidentally just last week a week ago now bp argued that we're at peak oil right now hmm. um i i said in 2018 peak oil demand will occur 2027 plus or minus four years and I still I still think that's holding up it's it's possible we're at peak oil right now, but I think most likely we will hit peak oil within the next eight years and that's going to uh, trigger a, a big change in the exploration that the world needs okay so. And I—it's the typical politician. I answered what I wanted to answer, not what you asked.
1: No, no worries. Uh, Let me let me ask another question on that because you've been doing, you've you've been in school. You're looking at sustainable energy, and sometimes I ask people when will we be at zero, and they say that's the wrong question for you. And what you're looking at is that. Do you still see that as a a relevant metric net zero or should we be looking at something else and should we stop really doing carbon accounting but should we be doing some other type of accounting
2: Well uh, carbon accounting is a partial solution you know people have talked about the triple bottom line and uh, that triple bottom line that in- includes how we affect the world socially as well as environmentally. And uh, if business is going to support humanity for another thousand years, then probably that needs to change. As for becoming net zero, the date of net zero does not matter. What matters is how much we emit between here and there. So if we got to net zero by um, maintaining current emissions for the next 15 years had a nuclear war. And then whatever that that would change the calculus, but let's say for whatever reason, instantaneously, we had no emissions. We would still blow out our, our budget. What matters is the total amount of carbon that we release in the atmosphere. Um, so that the, really the more relevant question is not when we get to net zero but when will when will we start drastically reducing? And I think we're starting that now. I I think, in the um, like I said before, we're sitting at at a spot a lot like early '90s in the in the internet age. So, 1993. I may have told you this before. 1993. I was interning with an oil and gas company, and we were walking to lunch, and the IT guy says. He's so excited about this new thing called the World Wide Web. He says it's awesome. Computers can talk to each other, and you can see what was on a computer in Australia if you wanted to. I, I kind of politely nodded my head, and inside I'm thinking, why on earth would I care what's on a computer in Australia? <laughs> <laughs> That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> of course, I was hugely wrong enormously diametrically wrong i just didn't get it but with, within just a few years of course it had been a run on domain names and within seven years everyone de rigueur had to have a website and we were paying uh dollars $200, 250 an hour for people to to hard code um not hard code but to physically type out html and that's the kind of growth trajectory I think I see here. A lot of people don't see the value. And, and a lot of people who call themselves energy experts don't understand the value and don't understand what's going to happen. I, I don't know. I know what's going to happen. I do think it's going to be fast and dramatic.
1: Okay. Oh fast and dramatic. Hopefully, it's not driving over a cliff kind of fast and oh. dramatic, though. Well, that it's, would not be comfortable.
2: No. You know, there's the... There's talk about an orderly transition and it's a it's a really hard thing to do it fast and orderly. So if And orderly yeah, if you yeah. if you buy it if you get orderly, you're more likely to have more consequences. If you do it fast, you have more consequences now, less consequences in the future. It's um
1: Yeah. So well I think you get basically we're going to have consequences. The question (laughs) is, what type? That's exactly
2: right. right. Do you want the short-term pain uh, or do you want the permanent pain? Do you want the short-term pain and changing or do you want the permanent long-term change uh, when it's a lot warmer and and volatile? Yeah. 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 Well, I'm I'm trying to do my part. Um, (laughs) I'm looking at a new car. I'm going to try to buy a a Volkswagen electric vehicle and then I'm going to... Keep, I'm okay. going to keep my Suburban. <laughs> uh, we can going to keep my Suburban, uh, and that way nobody else is going to use it. Matt, <laughs> and it's that's, a POS. Uh,
1: yeah, that's one way to do it. <laughs> so the last final okay. question is, I'll still give you the opportunity to ask me a question.
2: Uh, you know, do you ever watch Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? I don't. Oh, okay. NPR News Quiz—it's fun, and they—they always ask somebody at the end. They give them time to think, and they ask them uh, for some sort of prediction. I've—and that's what I had in mind when you asked me the question. But I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. Um, I'm just—I'm just glad to, to be here and glad to have you come into Carbon Expo.
1: Yeah. Well. I definitely am looking forward to it and I think that when when everybody I'll just I'll give my two cents on Carbon Expo then. Sure. But when when everybody started switching to the the virtual conferences and saying this is because of the pandemic we're doing all of this stuff we're going to we're still going to have these conferences and and share all this stuff and it's going to be great. I think there there were conferences that were were poorly done, and it really wasn't much of anything. There were a lot of technical difficulties trying to stream um, stream conversations and stream presentations, and and there is a lot of there's a lot of facade on them. Which I think is is something that all of them have. There's this facade of trying to make you feel like you're in on an expo floor or or in an auditorium watching a presentation. And and overall, I think the idea of of the virtual conferences is just tough. But I appreciate the first part is I appreciate that that you are continuing to do that because it makes it more accessible it makes it so that anybody can can go and view this this information and and gain this knowledge and it is important to to have it pre-recorded so that people from all over the world can join because the uh i just heard the other day and and this is when you think about the atmosphere like it's the atmosphere. There is, we don't have like walls set up between countries. So we, whatever we're doing ultimately is a component of the entire atmosphere. So we need to be helping along and teaching everybody else as we are also doing this. So I think all of that to say Carbon Expo is, is one of those great opportunities. And And helps kind of everybody along through that. So I think that, and one aspect that nobody, we, we get on, we get on celebrities for this more than we get on ourselves, but all of the travel associated with conferences and, and field work and, and just energy production or just regular life, that is a, a pretty big component to, to all of our energy use. So it's it's not the biggest, but if we can reduce that just incrementally, that adds an opportunity. An opportunity to lower emissions and to do our part. Yeah. So I think that's an opportunity here as well. Carbon Expo is saying we are not going to have a in-person conference because we are trying to decarbonize. Right. And, the- and by not having it, we can decarbonize I,
2: I appreciate that and that is that is our intent to, to remain vir- virtual and that's part of the reason uh, now i was really fortunate when i was planning the conference to find this really unique platform that creates a great deal of interaction among people it's not just yep. um watching the life watching television um it, it, yeah. it's, it's a great platform i appreciate you saying so and sometime, another time, we'll have to talk about the uh, role of China in the atmosphere and the hip- hypocrisy of people flying to, to COP. But that's that's <laughs> a topic for another day.
1: Yes. Yeah. So just out of curiosity, I'm going to put okay. you on the spot here. Is Carbon Expo net zero? Is it carbon neutral?
2: Uh, we have no explicit footprint. Um, the, no scope one emissions, we have scope two emissions from the electricity we use. Uh, And we have thought about but have not yet purchased carbon offsets. I, uh, my business does buy carbon offsets when I travel. But I do not, the Carbon Expo does not buy uh, yet buy carbon offsets for its electricity.
1: All right. Just, uh, I think, obviously, there, it's, it's great to think about well, there's no actual scope one emissions, right? Because <laughs> because it's totally virtual. Yeah. But yeah, the the scope two, that's where you start to. That's where everybody, I think, is is starting to think about like how do we actually decarbonize scope two, yeah. and decarbonize in a valuable, sustainable right. way.
2: Well, and I think we're going to find that there are some things that don't work as well, like the internet. There's some things that don't work as well. There's some things that work fantastically better and there are some things yep. where it's going to be one and then the other. Uh, you know the uh, yep. but it's it's going to be a ride.
1: Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, Dwayne, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? No, I just
2: just thanks for having me, Joe.
1: All right. Well, thank you again, Dwayne, and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to go fill out. The link for that is also in the show notes. Please go fill that out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy.
0: Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.